1: Hi there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Laurie Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Philip Tai from Northeastern University about his new book, China's War on Smuggling, Law, Economic Life, and the Making of the Modern State, 1842 to 1965. It recently came out this year in 2018 with Columbia University Press. This new book deals with China's war against smuggling from the late Qing to the early years of the Chinese communist state and beyond. This study highlights three issues. The expansion of the state through economic interventions, the changing definition of what constituted licit and illicit commerce, and the ways that government control over the economy impacted the everyday lives of individuals, merchants, and communities. Drawing from a rich array of sources, including customs records, legal cases, press reports, and literature, Tai provides a fresh, insightful take on the development of the modern state during a period of dramatic change in China. It was a pleasure to read his book and speak with him about it. Please enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today, we'll be talking to Philip Tai about his book, China's War on Smuggling, Law, Economic Life, and the Making of the Modern State, 1842 to 1965. Philip, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Lori. Welcome. uh, Very happy to be here.
1: Could you start us off by telling us a little bit uh, about your background?
0: Um, About my background, sure. Well, I am an assistant professor uh, of history at Northeastern University in Boston, specializing in modern Chinese, East Asian legal and economic history. I was originally born in Hong Kong, but I really consider myself a Californian. Um, I grew up in California. I received my BA in history at UC Berkeley, and I received my PhD in history at Stanford. Um, The main intellectual pillars of my life have always been history, and economics. And like many academics, my research interest is intimately tied to my personal biography. History, in fact, was actually one of my favorite subjects growing up. Um, I was one of those um, history nerds uh, who, who liked to read his uh, history textbook. Um, and growing up in California, almost all the history classes I took were american and european history which i really enjoyed but um, by the time i went to college at uc berkeley i was very much eager to get in touch with my cultural roots so when i arrived at uc berkeley i took full advantage of all the china related and east asian related courses um, the school offered i took chinese language courses chinese history classes chinese philosophy classes i studied abroad in china and so forth Now, as for economics, um, economics was another lifelong interest of mine. Um, Growing up, I devoured magazines like, um, like Business Week, uh, The Economist. These were magazines that my father subscribed to. I also had some professional experience um, outside the academy. Um, between my time as an undergraduate and my time as a graduate student, I spent actually several years working in the private sector, working in consulting, working in finance. So when I finally decided to enter graduate school, I felt that studying Chinese economic history would be sort of the most ideal, um, convenient vehicle to combine my different um, interests.
1: And how did you come specifically to write a book on uh, China's war on smuggling?
0: Hmm. Well, that's a very um, interesting uh, question. Um, as for the research topic specifically, um, I never really had any sort of personal fascination with um, s- smuggling or crime. Um, Like other academics, um, I came into my research topic by pure, um, pure, pure luck, pure serendipity. Um, China's war on smuggling is essentially an expansion of my uh, doctoral dissertation, which I had completed in 2013 under the supervision of my advisor, the Chinese legal historian Matthew Sommer. Um, Originally, the scope and coverage of the dissertation, which Uh, was much more modest. Um, So I spent several years revising a few chapters, adding a few chapters, conducting additional research before I finally published it in June 2018. Um, I originally came into that topic um, when I kicked off my fieldwork in China many years ago. Um, When I arrived in China to conduct um, research for the dissertation, I had this sort of vague plan, this vague idea that I would write this global history or this economic history of trade in Southeast um, China and during those early days in the archives um, I was poring over many records many catalogs looking through a lot of materials Um, as I was doing so however I I kept coming across uh, materials um, or catalog headings related to smuggling or anti smuggling just one after another and initially when I um, encountered all these uh, materials um, my reaction was actually one of annoyance. I remember thinking to myself that I did not really, I did not want to look at smuggling. I wanted to look at trade, you know, the idea that it was not related, that smuggling was not related to what I was looking at. But of course um, it slowly dawned on me that smuggling, smuggling is trade. It's just not trade that is um, legal. And once I had that epiphany, um, I began to see smuggling everywhere, not just because it was widely, um, uh, Practice, um, but it was also very widely discussed. And as I continued with my research, I also discovered and realized that smuggling intersected with many key issues in modern Chinese history, whether you're talking about the development of the modern state, uh, the expansion of state authority, the transformation of everyday life. Um, so smuggling was a very important um, driver of many changes and As I've said in my book, um, smuggling may have operated on the margins of the law, but it was far from marginal in driving some important trends in modern Chinese history.
1: Certainly. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about the sources that you used for this study since you referenced those? Uh, You make the point several times in your book that smuggling can be a difficult topic to study because of its illegality. So. Uh, given that what kinds of sources were you were you looking at?
0: Um, I think that um, there was a historian um, who once said that the goals of a smuggler is to not appear appear in the the archives. You know, the smuggler who appears in the archives is a bad smuggler because he got caught um, or his activities were uncovered. So it's very difficult and somewhat elusive to to study a topic like smuggling because many um, criminologists, many historians of crime have um, been concerned with the so-called dark figure of history. You know, these are activities that normally fall out Outside the purview of um, the public gaze or the official gaze. So, I had to use a diverse set of materials. So, very uh, generally speaking, I use um, materials I considered quote unquote official sources, um, sources produced by um, the state. Um, The core materials that I employ are customs records. Um, Customs records are mostly um, produced by agents, um, customs agents, um, bureaucrats who are. Um, normally at the front lines of this uh, campaign against smuggling or people who are very much, uh, who have very much a, a firsthand experience in seeing trafficking. Um, and their uh, archives contain um, everything from uh, reports on ordinary uh, trading activities, um, on specific uh, smuggling incidents, on intelligence reports, and so forth. I also um, employ other official sources like legal cases. Legal cases are very interesting in the sense that they show what the state thought was um, illegal, how they try to define that um, uh, definition, um, and how they try to enforce that definition in the courtroom. Um, So uh, these official Sources in some ways tell us how um, what the, the imperatives of the state uh, were, and how they tried to push and enforce that that imperatives. Um, as for non official sources, um, sources I try to use to round out the different perspectives, um, I include uh, materials like uh, newspaper articles. Um, Magazine articles, um, political cartoons, and even literary fiction. Again, these sort of um, non-official sources can give us uh, different perspectives um, than the ones that are produced by the state, and they can also give us insights as to how ordinary people viewed smuggling. You know, did their opinions. Um, accord with or differ from um, that of the state Um, and other uh, and they also may talk about smuggling in um, very interesting ways Um, for instance even if the officials uh, or customs agents can't seem to get a handle on um, who was actually conducting smuggling there are many journalists uh, many uh, writers who actually might be able to say something about that um, say something about these activities um, so it's very important for me when I was trying to uh, put this project together to consult this very diverse array of materials to make sure that I understand what uh, the state said but also what this what the uh, uh, to not fall into this sort of state-centered perspective by consulting sources outside the purview of the state.
1: Right. So let's uh, dig right into uh, the meat of your book now and and start with chapter one. Uh, So here you begin your study with uh, coastal commerce and the treaty port era in China. Um, So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, why you started at this uh, period in time and uh, what kinds of features of the unequal treaties Um, were interesting for you to trace.
0: Sure. Well, the book is essentially a legal and economic history of smuggling on the China coast um, from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century. Um, under different Chinese regimes, the Qing Dynasty, the Republic of China, and the People's Republic of China. Um, This period included seminal events like the decline and fall of imperial China, the creation of the Chinese Republic, the outbreak of the Second World War, the Chinese Civil War, the Communist Revolution, and so forth. And I chronicle in my book, the many changes in smuggling, how it was practiced, how it was perceived, and how it was suppressed during the entire period. Now, smuggling itself for me was a very fascinating topic, and I unearthed many, many vivid episodes. Um, and these episodes are really um, uh, are as interesting as they are sensational, and I, I'm very impressed by how um, Uh, ingenious how uh, entrepreneurial people can be in trying to evade the laws but the reason why I I also think that it's important is that um, smuggling is essentially a state-defined crime it is whatever the state says it is at any given time and how they define it usually starts with laws Um, and laws during the treaty port era in many ways, is shaped not just by domestic Chinese laws, but also by uh, foreign treaties. Um, Because um, during this period when, um, uh, from the late 19th century onward, China had to... Sign a number of foreign treaties after the defeat of the in the Opium Wars, um, and these treaties severely constrain Chinese authority in many different ways. Um, for instance, um, China had to accord foreigners living in China extraterritoriality, meaning that the foreigners in China. Um, were immune um, from domestic Chinese laws. They were under the jurisdiction of foreign laws. Um, another important feature of the Unequal Treaties was that China lost its uh, right to set its own tariffs. It had to set uh, fix its tariffs on foreign goods at a very low rate. Um, both of these um, features of the Unequal Treaties, the introduction of extraterritoriality and the deprivation of tariff autonomy, these two... Um, uh, 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 features of the unequal treaty shaped the way commerce, whether you're talking about uh, legal or illegal, it shaped how commerce was conducted from the late 19th century um, all the way through the uh, early 20th century. So in, for me, when or, in order for me to figure out what was smuggling, I had to find out what the legal framework was. And what the legal framework was during this period was very complicated and very much tied to, again, domestic laws, changes in domestic laws, and changes in the uh, international, uh, these foreign treaties that China had to sign. So that is why I had to start with the uh, the, the the treaty port era in the late uh, 19th century, going all the way to the early 20th century.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, during this period, you also make a note that uh, there was a new development, not just with these treaties, but with the creation of something called the Chinese Maritime Customs Service in 1854. So could you talk a little bit about Uh, the importance of that institution and the impact it had on commerce and smuggling on the China coast?
0: Sure. Well, the um, creation of the Chinese Maritime Customs Service um, was, uh, the the Chinese Maritime Customs Service was a institution that was operated um, by foreigners, mostly foreigners, um, throughout most of its existence. Um, But it all, but it reported it uh, reported to the uh, central Chinese state, whether it was the Qing court or the um, Republican government. Um, and it existed from the uh, 1850s all the way to uh, uh, the end of the uh, communist revolution. So it existed for almost a hundred years. And it was very important because it was one of these um, institutions that uh, managed, um, collected, and regulated um, uh sorry, collected tariffs and managed um, foreign trade on behalf of China. And it was an institution that was notable for its longevity. Um, there are no comparable institutions in Chinese history from the mid-19th through the um, uh, mid-20th centuries that had existed um, continuously. So its uh, its records, um, its operations um, were very much complete. Um, and these Uh, materials actually provide considerable um, wealth for um, historians. In the past, historians have used the records of the Chinese maritime customs, which included many things from things like Annual trade statistics to um, uh, annual trade reports. um, And the Chinese Maritime Customs, in addition to being in charge of collecting tariffs and managing foreign trade, it also had, um, at different points uh, in its uh, operations, um, managed the postal service, it managed, uh, you know, uh, collected data on weather, um, climate. Um, it produced all these reports on random topics like the uh, like opium, um, cotton, and so forth. So this was an institution that was very big, um, very expansive um, in its operational scope. Um, and it was very important to my research because it was the agency, the number one agency on the front lines of the campaigns against smuggling, and it was very important um, in how it Um, in order to understand smuggling, in order to understand how the Chinese government sought to enforce these um, forces anti-smuggling laws, we had to look at the Chinese Maritime Customs Service. And there is actually uh, considerable research interest in the Chinese Maritime Customs Service um, lately because of the archives um, that has opened up in recent years. Um, So, and researchers have been able to um, mine these uh, rich archives to look at a variety of topics. So um, I just happen to look at smuggling, but um, there could be other uh, opportunities um, for other scholars to look at, uh, uh, for other opportunities in, in um, research topics for other scholars as well.
1: And one last thing about this chapter is that uh, you note that uh, low tariffs created by the Unequal Treaties Um, shaped the type of commodities that were being smuggled during this time. So could you talk a little bit about that development?
0: Sure. The main, um, development that i try to trace and during this long period is that during the uh, treaty port era during this era when china was constrained by the unequal treaties it had to maintain tariffs again very low at a rate of uh, roughly five percent on almost all foreign imports with the exception of a very few imports and during this period of low tariffs Um, it simply didn't really make a lot of sense for smugglers to try to smuggle um, certain um, goods. I mean, in the sense that there were a lot of smuggling going on, but if you really wanted to make money as a smuggler during this time, you wanted to smuggle goods that were either um, heavily taxed or uh, expressly prohibited. And generally speaking, during this era of low tariffs, the goods that um, smugglers really wanted to traffic were... um, Uh, goods like narcotics, like opium, which was heavily taxed. Um, Commodities or uh, items like weapons, which was, again, prohibited, and uh, items like salt. Salt was a a government monopoly. Um, Everything else might have been trafficked, but it just didn't really make a lot of sense. You're not really um, making that much money um, when you try to smuggle some ordinary uh, commodity. And from the perspective of the state, um, certainly there were many... um, customs officials who tried to crack down on um, run-of-the-mill smuggling, um, but the attention of most state officials was directed at um, fighting the smuggling of the uh, three commodities I, I talked about, um, narcotics, weapons, and salt, because again, these were the commodities that the state had an interest in regulating. Um, again, either these commodities were heavily taxed, meaning that these money this was money that the state was depending on, or they were expressly prohibited, meaning that the state did not want them in uh, coming into China. Um, And so during this treaty port era, during this era of low tariffs, um, basically uh, the the goods that were most frequently and most profitably trafficked were these three commodities. Um, Again, uh, this does not mean that there were no smuggling of other goods, but that these three goods were the focus of um, both smugglers and by state agents. But this, of course, all changes um, later on, um, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about very soon.
1: Uh, Yeah. So moving on to your second chapter, you uh, come back to this uh, idea that the unequal treaties shaped the coastal economy through the two features which you've mentioned, extraterritoriality and the deprivation of tariff autonomy. Um, And in this chapter, you're turning more to Uh, the intellectual debates that happen about smuggling and about uh, tariff tariff autonomy. Um, So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what those debates looked like first among the literati during the late Qing and then uh, in these more public debates uh, during the early Republic.
0: Sure. Um, The reason why I actually thought um, had to look at the issue of tariff autonomy is that when I was writing this book on um, on smuggling, um, tariffs were very central to driving what um, smuggling was. If something was heavily taxed um, you know, the, it was likely to be uh, frequently smuggled, um, and so as a result, I had to actually look at the ter- the history of the tariff in uh, in in China, and I had to actually try to also understand what did people think about. Um, uh the tariff how did they react to uh china's deprivation of tariff autonomy when people look at this period of um of chinese history most people in uh, china today when they think about the unequal treaties they will remember extraterritoriality um you know this image of the foreigner coming into china committing crimes with impunity and being um, uh, able to escape the 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 reach of chinese law Um, and that's that. That is definitely um, uh, not exactly uh, completely inaccurate, um, but the other pillar of the unequal treaty system, the treaty port system was the deprivation of tariff autonomy. And this is something that most people don't, don't remember as well. Um, And so I decided to, to sort of dive in into this history. And I discovered that even though today, most people, when they think of the unequal treaties, they think of extraterritoriality. They don't really think about the loss of tariff autonomy. When you go back to the late Qing, um, many officials, many um, literati, many um, thinkers of the late Qing, they actually thought that tariff autonomy the deprivation of tariff autonomy was far more important um far more of a constraint on chinese authority than extraterritoriality they thought at the time that you know we can let them foreigners manage the foreigners like let go ahead and let the british consuls deal with um britain's um, on chinese soil but in the meantime we really are the state the china the court really needs money and we need to raise money through through tariffs um, so during this um period in the late Qing, there are many um chinese uh thinkers officials who were beginning to worry beginning to become concerned that this tariff was constraining finances and there was a growing appreciation of the fact that many other countries particularly in the west were able to um, promote domestic industrialization or promote their um, their their economies by using the tariff, using the tariff as sort of this weapon. Um, and this is this reflects also um, late 19th century um, uh, economic thought in China. Um, many um, Thinkers at the time would have this uh, uh, thinking and orientation that we might consider mercantilist. You know, using the levers of state policies to promote um, uh, exports, uh, to minimize imports. So the tariff was the, the deprivation of tariff autonomy was very uh, much of a of an issue for these um, for these officials. Um, but when you look into the 20th century. Um, as you look into the 20th century, you start to see when you look at um, uh, public discussions in newspapers and magazines, you begin to see that ordinary people began to look at the deprivation of tariff autonomy through nationalistic lenses. Um, Qing literati, Qing officials in the late 19th century saw this as sort of a fiscal problem. But by the early 20th century, many ordinary people, many um, uh, public uh, uh intellectuals began to see the deprivation of tariff autonomy as a, a, a nationalistic issues. Like this is uh, that China cannot uh, become a normal, quote, unquote, a normal country until it has the right to set its own tariffs. So in addition to being an economic problem or, or a policy problem became a national problem by the early 20th century. And then by the time that the nationalists come into power, the nationalists um, led by General Chiang Kai-shek, um, unify much, uh, many, many parts of, of China in 1928. Um, by that time, um, as, uh, you know, right before the onset of the great depression, um, there is also a change in orientation in thinking, um, not just in China, but around the world, this idea that states could and should exercise more control over their economies. Um, and the, again, the deprivation of tariff autonomy was a very, um, a serious constraint for states to uh, control um, their economies. I mean, if a state can't have, uh, can't use a tariff to calibrate its imports and exports, it really can't control its economy. So basically the second chapter traces this very long history of the tariff from something that was once a concern amongst a very um, elite, but very small group of officials and literati to a public uh, issue, a public uh, concern, a problem for the nation. Right. Right. And how it? it, Oh, sorry. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, So, yeah, you do that in this chapter all the way up to 1928 when um, tariff autonomy is uh, eventually achieved. Um, Then, in chapter three, you look into what does the legal context look like uh, during the Nanjing decade um, when the nationalists make some significant changes to uh, the tariffs and making them higher. So I'm wondering now if you can turn to um, how the enforcement of smuggling changed during the Nanjing decade as a result um, and how does the uh, the national government change its laws
0: sure um so basically much of what I've described about um the uh the the treaty port era this era this uh, period of low tariffs um you know China being constrained by these um unequal treaties, this begins to change starting in 1928 when, again, the nationalists take power, they become the uh, internationally recognized central government of China. Their their actual control over the rest of China is pretty tenuous, but at least from the perspective of the international community, they are quote-unquote China's government. Um, Also, um, they are the first sort of you know they they represent the first regime that have some semblance of central authority since the collapse of the imperial dynasty back in 1912 um, 1911 1912 Um, and more importantly this um, government begins to um, uh, try to institute all these policies to try to modernize china um, modernize the chinese state modernize the chinese economy and one of their first accomplishments was to recover china's tariff autonomy um, they did so through diplomatic negotiations. They actually, um, these negotiations actually drag on for several years. Um, but this recovery of China's tariff autonomy begins in 1928, and the nationalist government begins to introduce um, uh, tariffs o- on imports over successive rounds. Um, and these increases in tariffs were not were not trivial. Um, in many cases, these tariffs, which were again roughly fixed at at five percent, they begin to rise by. Um, double to triple digit rates, um, anywhere from 10%, 20%, 40%, 100%, 150% and so forth, depending on the commodity. And the nationalists um, also began to introduce more restrictions on commercial regulations to better control foreign trade. Now, these policies from the perspective of the governments um, certainly were very beneficial. Um, These higher tariffs helped raise money. Tariffs during the first 10 years of the nationalist government, the Nanjing decade that you refer to, um, tariffs during this period made up anywhere from 40 to 70 percent of the government's revenue. So this is a very serious source of their funding. Um, These higher tariffs, these more restrictive policies also helped fulfill a strategic aim for the government. Chinese leaders had long envisioned a modern China with an industrialized economy and that this industrialized economy would be guided by the central state. Um, And to realize this vision, to realize this vision of an industrialized uh, China With a strong state, China, in the minds of these officials, had to protect and nurture its domestic industries. It had to, again, control imports and exports and had to discipline consumers, um, trying to encourage them to buy more domestic goods and discourage them uh, from buying um, uh, foreign goods. Now, again, from the perspective of the government, higher tariffs, more restrictive policies. Are great, but for everyone else, whether um, these people were consumers or businesses, these policies simply meant higher prices and less commercial freedom. They were um, people, uh, again, consumers, businesses, um were essentially forced to underwrite um the nationalist policies by paying more um for imported foreign goods or being forced to change their um their uh their patterns of consumption. And then suddenly um with this change in policies with higher tariffs more restrictive trading policies the incentives for smuggling increased dramatically again when tariffs were at five percent the incentives the profits to smuggle were not really great but when tariffs rose dramatically again anywhere from you know from like 10 percent to like 100 150 percent now at this rate um the incentives um, and profits to smuggle were enormous. And very soon a smuggling epidemic broke out along the China coast, um, as everyone rushed to profit from this um, voracious demand for cheap quality smuggled goods. Um, And then faced with this smuggling epidemic um, that it it created with its own policies, the nationalist government um, embarks on a very expansive, very coercive and very violent anti-smuggling campaign. um, the government would send its state agents to aggressively crack down on illegal trade. Um, the state agents conducted much more invasive searches on ships, on trains, in homes, and businesses, and on travelers. Um, and most importantly, the government also passed more restrictions on commerce, more draconian laws against smuggling. Um, before 1928, the punishments um, related to smuggling, um, unless you're talking about smuggling of... Um, Of weapons of narcotics and so forth people were usually uh, if violators were usually fined um or they might have their goods confiscated um but after 1928 laws we can see progressively become harsher um smuggling becomes also criminalized um duty evasion becomes criminalized so The general trend that you see um, starting from 1928 is a government that's taking smuggling much more seriously Um, it is taking enforcement much more seriously it is writing um, new laws that would criminalize behaviors that before were not really criminalized Um, now all of these efforts would steadily help the central government broadcast and assert its authority um, essentially giving it the power to um, define and enforce what it considered to be legal trade, both, um, you know, they can uh, define and enforce these um, uh, uh, definitions both on the ground and in the courtroom. So the that chapter, um, chapter three, basically traces this dramatic expansion of state authority after the nationalists began to recover tariff autonomy.
1: Something that I found kind of interesting in this chapter was that uh, you suggest that the nationalist government is using these new tariffs and harsher enforcement uh, to combat extraterritoriality. I wonder if you could explain that.
0: Sure. Um, so basically, the nationalists um, were able to get rid of, um, ter- uh, sorry, sorry. they were able to recover China's tariff autonomy in 1928. They also wanted to sort of get rid of the other pillar of the uh, of the unequal treaties of the treaty port order, which was extraterritoriality. However, the nationalists were not able to do so until 1943. Um, foreign powers were much more willing to uh, grant China its right to set its own tariffs. They were less um, willing to subject their own nationals on Chinese soils to Chinese laws. So, at, in the meantime, as the nationalists were negotiating with foreign powers to eliminate extraterritoriality, um, fighting smuggling. In some ways, sort of pushed against um, these constraints, um, pushed against this uh, these extraterritorial privileges um, by foreigners by uh, through enforcement because through enforcing anti-smuggling laws, um, every time state agents um, try to let's say um, confiscate let's say a, a, a Japanese um, uh, trawler, a Japanese boat for uh, carrying smuggled goods. Every time it tried to, they try to fine a foreign businessman or business person um, from importing uh, smuggled goods. Um, or every time um, Chinese uh, agents would try to enter a foreign concession to try to arrest a Chinese smuggler, they had to encounter, they had to negotiate um, these very uh, complicated issues of jurisdiction um, and try to assert Chinese authority, push Chinese authority um, into colon- um, uh, foreign enclaves or try to extend Chinese authority over foreigners on Chinese soil. Um, this is a phenomenon that the uh Chinese historian, the great uh, Chinese historian, uh, Frederick Wakeman called asserting sovereignty through policing, basically by demonstrating authority on the ground, they were able to sort of push back um, uh, these extraterritorial privileges by asserting um, the right of Chinese authorities to enforce Chinese laws on Chinese soil on everyone regardless whether they were uh, foreigners or chinese um they were not always successful um in fact many of these um efforts were um proved uh, uh were, were very much frustrated um by foreign powers by foreign businesses and so forth but nonetheless um every time um uh, you know during this this campaign against smuggling um Uh, the nationalists were able to sort of successfully and incrementally advance and expand um, Chinese uh, authority over, um, over foreign concessions and over uh, foreigners in China. So the fight against smuggling, I argued, was this sort of um, hidden story where this um, sort of unknown story about this, the eventual demise of extraterritoriality. I mean, the whole uh, general narrative of extraterritoriality is that um, it was introduced in China in 1842 and it was not um, uh, abrogated, was not annulled or, or, or dismantled until 1943, this so-called 100 years of humiliation. But in my um, book, I try to point out that as Chinese officials um, were trying to enforce these anti-smuggling laws, they were trying to dismantle this um, uh, treaty port order from the bottom up.
1: And that's a good seg into your next chapter, which talks about um, looking at these bottom-up practices, uh, particularly from smugglers, um, and even in the public, the kind of response that there is to uh, smuggling. Uh, But you actually begin this chapter by looking at how new policies impacted uh, three commodities in particular, rayon, kerosene, and sugar. I'm wondering if you could Talk to us about perhaps one of those examples.
0: Um, Sure. Um, Basically, the 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 what I try to do um, throughout the book is to look at the um, changes in government policies, um, whether it's through the tariffs, whether through laws, through regulations, prohibitions, and so forth, and see how they how these changes translated into. Uh, new definitions of smuggling and how they may have translated or incentive uh, you know translated to the incentives for smuggling. Um, so this uh, chapter, where I begin to look at smuggling from the perspective of consumers, businesses, and the public, um what I try to do is try to understand how these new tariffs basically change the calculus of smuggling. Um as I mentioned before, um, the most profitably trafficked uh, commodities, before the uh, before 1928, before China recovered its tariff autonomy, um, generally speaking, were narcotics, weapons, and salt. Um, these commodities remain profitably trafficked. Um, you know, they they continue. You know, smugglers continue to uh, move these commodities. They continue to make money off of these uh, uh, commodities. But after 1928, when the nationalist government raised tariffs on scores of ordinary consumer products, Um, all of a sudden it became um, very profitable for uh, smugglers to move, let's say uh, sugar or kerosene or rayon, rayon being this uh, material, this fabric that was used for clothes um, when these tariffs were double-digit, even triple-digit range. I mean, um, if you were a smuggler, um, you could, yes, indeed smuggle, uh, continue to make money smuggling weapons, smuggling um, drugs, but um, these commodities are very difficult to come by and also they were very dangerous to traffic. Um, but if you wanted to smuggle, sugar, which is completely, it's, a, it's, it's legal. It's not, you know, con- sugar itself is not illegal. It's um, its just heavily taxed. What you could do is just buy sugar um, in a place like Hong Kong, uh, which remained a British colony throughout this period, um, and then somehow get it over the border into mainland China, into China itself. Um, and then you can avoid paying all these punitive um, duties, these uh, taxes, and then sort of um, sell it. Um, at a cheaper price compared to those um, people who had imported goods legally, and had to pay the the um, the tariffs and had to pass on that um, that uh, that that cost onto the consumers. So what I do in this chapter is I begin to look at these three commodities. These three commodities were the most um, uh, with the largest, were among the largest um, imports into China, and they also were the most popular imports. These were the imports that were also uh, characterized by what economists might call inelastic demand, meaning that demand that was um, fairly stable, that did not really change a lot with um, increases in prices. They were consumed on an uh, everyday basis, um, by consumers, and by businesses. Um, so for instance, one of the commodities that I looked at was kerosene. Kerosene was this um, product that was used to light Chinese homes. Um, this was used for all sorts of purposes. Um, and after the uh, the nationalist government tried to raise tariffs on kerosene, it was also trying to promote uh, domestic kerosene market. It also saw that um, the the demand for kerosene um, by taxing it that could create a steady uh, supply of money for the government Um, after the introduction of these tariffs all of a sudden you had all these um, uh, traffickers trying to import um, smuggled kerosene Um, and it's really interesting because you see um, importers like um, one of the biggest importers of kerosene into china was the american um, oil company standard oil Um, and it Complained. One of the, the the strangest things was that these uh, companies um, complained uh, about how this influx of foreign, uh, of, of smuggled kerosene um, undercut their um, their legitimately imported um, kerosene. So again, um, looking at um, these commodities help us try to understand how government policies change the calculus of smuggling and also it gives us a a sense of how individual consumers felt about these uh, increased taxes
1: and uh, in this chapter you also talk about uh, the countermeasures that smugglers took uh, in the face of these stricter policies and higher tariffs could you talk about some of those
0: sure Um, in this chapter what i wanted to do um, was to provide an opportunity for um you know to to sort of flip that perspective the state-centered perspective you know instead of looking at smuggling from the top down looking at it from the bottom up looking at how smugglers um operated and one thing that i was struck by when i was doing my research was that on the one hand you had a state that was expanding its um its uh, enforcement capabilities it was investing considerable resources in arming its agents in buying them the latest um, technologies in um in communications um in uh you know buying them building buying uh, building bigger ships um and so forth um but in the face of this uh expansion of state authority in the face of this um uh, uh enforcement expansion of enforcement capabilities the smugglers themselves um, also took these so-called, what I called countermeasures of evasion, of obfuscation, of resistance. Um, you know these measures to try to counter, try to deflect, um, uh, uh, you know, state uh, how how the state was beginning to uh, to crack down on smuggling. And the the measures I I, I describe in the book um, are um, I, I found them to be very uh, fascinating because you had um, businesses that very in, uh, uh, in very smartly um try to in, in, in do all sorts of things to cover up their their tracks they would try to uh, get uh, operate uh, cooperate with middlemen um to import goods that would try to evade um the, the 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 attention of customs officials um they would try to um you know for instance um when uh the uh the Chinese government begins to invest considerable resources in building this um, very expansive, um, very technologically sophisticated um, uh, wireless network of radios, you know, for to help um, officials, uh, customs officials communicate with one another, the smugglers themselves would build their sort of their own mirror um, uh, communications um, uh, network um, to eavesdrop on this uh, 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 communications network or just communicate... Uh, amongst themselves. So effectively, these sorts of measures would um, sort of nullify the advantages of the state. Um, other measures included um, something as simple as posting lookouts um, at uh, various uh, custom stations so that when um, the customs uh, patrol boats sail out, they someone would fire a flare, would, it, <laughs> would uh, uh, would notify other smugglers that the, uh, the, the 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 ship was was out, and um, and they would adjust their their activities accordingly. So the main point that I make here in looking at this is understanding how um, how uh, uh, smugglers themselves could engage in um, I don't know uh, asymmetrical um, countermeasures um, to be able to cheaply, effectively. Um, and consistently um, match um, these uh, uh, measures produced by the state to try to cover up their tracks to continue smuggling.
1: And you also talk about uh, the kind of popular response uh, to the smuggling epidemic in in popular media, which has a lot of unease surrounding it, anxiety, but also it seems at times um, it's somewhat critical of the state as well. Could you perhaps talk to us about that um, and in particular I was interested in uh, the the image that people had in their minds of uh, women smugglers in particular so we have uh, this image of the smuggler being mixed with the image of women and that's particularly anxiety inducing for uh, the Chinese public it seems.
0: Yes um, so when I looked at this period, um, trying to understand what did the public think of smuggling. On the one hand, you could say, well, everyone obviously Chinese consumers voted with their wallets. They're buying smuggled goods, so they obviously don't th- didn't think that smuggling was a bad thing. I mean, if they're if they're buying smuggled goods, they obviously didn't care about what the government. Was saying about um, smuggling's harm to the nation, to the to the government's finances, and so forth. And that is certainly um, one um, perspective that I think is is accurate. I mean, like you know, Chinese many Chinese consumers voted with their wallets; they bought smuggled goods. But to say that um, they bought smuggled goods, therefore they didn't care about um, nationalism, I, I think that it it from looking at all these um, uh, uh, writings, these political cartoons. Um, I, I, think that it also overlooks a very, um, pervasive, uh, social sense of, of unease, um, because smuggling, even though, uh, many consumers did willingly, um, buy smuggled goods, there were many, um, uh, thinkers who looked at this, um, you know, outbreak of lawlessness, you know, from their perspective with a lot of, um, apprehension, um, because many of these, uh smuggled goods um, were coming from places um, like Japan, um, which was at the time a a, a, a geopolitical rival of of China. And um, as a result, you had many um, thinkers, um, many public intellectuals um, very much um, expressing unease at how um, there were a lot of Chinese um, consumers who seemed to blindly want to just buy any kind of foreign products, um, supporting, um, you know, uh, illegal activities, um, you know, uh, and supporting um, gangs, and eventually having this um, money that they uh, uh, that they use to purchase foreign goods instead of going it to domestic industries, it goes to foreign uh, companies. Um, as and so you see, and so you see that um, anxiety expressed again through um, a lot of writings during this period. I was surprised at um, the number of political cartoons that I have saw, um, which I also provided in the book, um, trying to liken um, smuggling as a form of foreign invasion. Um, this idea that uh, smuggling is just one way for geopolitical rivals like Japan or foreign powers to extend their control over China. Um, as for the uh, 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 the women smugglers that you mentioned, um, when I was looking at smuggling during this period, um, I I think that there was really interesting how smuggling highlighted this, this gender dimension Um, Because during this period, you had many um, women uh, who were engaged in smuggling. Um, One of the most uh, widely reported um, uh, incidents um, were women, um, poor women, um, impoverished women, Um, basically trying to eke out a very precarious living, trying to smuggle um, certain goods from port to port. So um, you'd have women, you know, one of the favorite ruses that they have is to pretend that they're pregnant, um, you know, strapping a lot of smuggled goods around their belly. And then of course, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, trying to fool, um, inspectors or, you know, carrying babies that were not actually babies, but, you know, bags of say sugar, um, <laughs> uh, disguised as, as babies trying to smuggle these, um, these goods. Um, and, um, the, this, uh, uh women smugglers were particularly effective because, um, many of the enforcers were men and, um, women were able, women smugglers, women traffickers were able to sort of use the social taboo of, you know, of, of, um, uh, uh against the in the invasion of the uh uh you know a uh, woman's um uh, privacy um as sort of a shield and so during this period as you had many um women engaged in smuggling they became much more um much more uh, uh visible in the public uh, eye this isn't to say that there were no men smugglers or that women did not engage in smuggling beforehand of course they did it's just that during this period um that as women um were also entering the workforce into factories um into uh you know the uh the uh the office space um one historian called this um entrance of women into the public sphere as meriting considerable anxiety generally generating considerable public anxiety and um during this period um also women would partake in smuggling. So this only exacerbated prevailing social anxieties about this changing role of women. And also it's very interesting to note that within um, some of the uh, popular um, uh, magazine articles, um, some of the political cartoons, as well as some of the literary fiction, um, there was also a discussion of, um, of smuggling and women. Um, there was this one political cartoon in my book that likened um, smuggling um, uh, you know, merchants who engage, a smug, engage in smuggling um, as akin to a um, a man engaging in the services of, of a prostitute and so forth. So there's these really interesting um, gender dimensions that I try to explore, try to at least sort of throw light on.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. If we can turn now to your fifth chapter and perhaps also your sixth chapter, this is when you talk about Uh, how smuggling and its enforcement changes uh, during first the Second Sino-Japanese War from 1937 to 1945, and then also um, during the Chinese Civil War until 1950. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about your findings about those kinds of changes that occur during those periods
0: certainly um during this period of war um, this uh, during the second sino japanese war and then during the chinese civil war historians in the past looking at this period have tried to um, look for either the seeds of nationalist defeat, after all the nationalists were eventually defeated by the communists in 1949. Um, they've actually looked at this period as a time that the national state was uh, collapsing um, or that the communists were building its network eventually able to prevail over uh, 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 its, uh, its rival. Um, and I think those narratives um, within the, um, within the, uh, the the, uh, the the modern Chinese history community, that has actually um, undergone some um, reassessment. Now, uh, historians looking at um, this period have remarked about how the Chinese state, uh, the national state, was indeed besieged, was indeed under great pressure, but even under such pressures, it was able to... Build a great uh, bureaucracy um, that extended um, economic controls in all sorts of ways. And looking at smuggling was um, was was something that that allowed me to sort of um, add something to this to this um, ongoing conversation. Because in the past, when um, historians have looked at smuggling during the Second Sino-Japanese War or in the uh, Chinese Civil War, they've done so with the assumption that this represented the beginning of the end or just another symptom of uh, nationalist uh, decay or nationalist collapse. Um, And I don't um, dispute that per se, but what I do want to point out is that um, during this period, the nationalist government um, actually imposes, introduces a raft of regulations, laws, um, trying to control the flow of commodities. I mean, they try to escalate all these um, controls that they were trying to introduce during the, the, the first 10 years of the rule, this Nanjing decade. Um, these controls escalate further during wartime. During wartime, um, the nationalist government would pass new laws that would nationalize certain uh, commodities, uh, uh, and they would try to retain some of these wartime controls during uh, into the Post-war or the you know post-war era, right after the uh, Second Sino-Japanese War, into um, the Chinese Civil War, um, and many of these uh, controls, many of these uh, regulations would themselves be um, be taken over by the communist government. Um, so during the wartime, during the uh, during the Second Sino-Japanese War, during the Chinese Civil War, there was considerable amounts of smuggling because the nationalist government was trying to assert, um, its control over different facets of the economy. Um, and of course, during, through the, uh, it was also encouraged by the, uh, by the, uh, the conditions of warfare, you know, the material deprivation, um, you know, the, uh, the great changes in supply and demand, um, and so forth. And so for instance, in the, um, uh, one, one finding that I have um, remarked upon in my chapter on smuggling during the Second Sino-Japanese War was this phenomenon of, quote-unquote, trading with the enemy. Um, the nationalist, uh, nationalist China, even though during the Second Sino-Japanese War, it retreated into the west, into uh, Chongqing, uh, Chongqing um, and uh, Western China, while the Japanese um, uh, occupied much of the East eastern seaboard. During this period, um, there was considerable trafficking um, between the uh, different sides. Um, historians in the past who have looked at this have said that this is the sort of, a, again, a, a symptom of nationalist decay, its inability to um discipline or monitor um its commanders on the the front i i, I don't dispute that but what i do want to say uh what i do say in the um in this chapter is that um again um we have to understand what were some of these um drivers of smuggling and also by putting this into comparative um uh into a pr- comparative context into a comparative perspective because when you look at through the annals of history, um, you'll realize that trading with the enemy, trading between two um, belligerents who are ostensibly at war, this is actually not a very uncommon uh, phenomenon. Um, I end one of my cha- my chapters on smuggling during the Second Sino-Japanese War with this uh, these uh, findings by these political scientists who basically looked at 500 years of warfare and concluded that yes, trading with the enemy, whether you're talking about outright warfare, whether you're talking about civil wars and so forth, this is actually a very very common phenomenon. So in many ways, the nationalists were engaged in something that was no different than what other uh, other regimes, other governments, other countries have done in the past. Um, as for the um, um, the chapter on smuggling during the the uh, Chinese Civil War, um, I do again point out some of the problems that the nationalists encountered in trying to rebuild a war torn economy. Um, the nationalists were trying to rebuild um, China after eight years of devastating warfare, while at the same time trying to suppress a communist insurgency. Um, so, so this so my my chapter on 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 that period basically. Um, tries to highlight why um, smuggling occurred because of many, uh, because of the the ways that the nationalist regime was trying to continue these wartime controls. Um, And also, I thought it was really interesting in the sense that the collapse of the Japanese empire after 1945, after um, World War II, the Second Sino-Japanese War, essentially redrew the Map the political map of East Asia. So you had a lot of trade, which was once considered um, within the Japanese Empire. Now all of a sudden you have um, trade uh, that was, you know, in this new period when you have, you know, Korea, um, which was a Japanese colony, gaining its independence, uh, Taiwan, which was a Japanese colony, now belonging part to to China again. Um, after these massive changes on the um, on the political on the geopolitical map, um, all of a sudden you have also changes in the definition of smuggling um and there's during this uh period as again when the nationalists were trying to fight a communist insurgency they were also trying to to try to figure out well how do we uh, establish trading relations with an independent korea how do we um, establish trading relations or should we establish trading relations with a defeated japan and so forth and so um during this this period when things were, were in flux um, people were not waiting for um the chinese government to Re-establish or to legalize formal trade they were considering uh, they were conducting their own um trade f- whether for profit or for survival and many of these policies were marked as quote-unquote smuggling um, another p- important um point that I, I i highlight in the chapter on smuggling in the um the, the Ch- during the chinese civil war was gold smuggling um, the chinese government um the nationalist government tried to impose these controls on um, on the movement of gold, it was very um, concerned about um, how uh, this uh, how the uh, you know the influx of gold led to the de- uh, depreciation of the Chinese currency. Um, And many of these policies actually um, not just had um, domestic impact, but it also reshaped the global economy for gold. During 1948, for instance, um, these policies that the Chinese government introduced um, basically encouraged gold. gold trafficking on a global scale. And I talk about how um, basically Hong Kong and Macau became these sort of funnels uh, for the global market for gold um, and how government policies, how Chinese government policies and new um, international um, uh, policies encourage this trafficking.
1: And we just have a couple minutes left. So I'm wondering if you could tell us briefly about um, some, some changes that occur uh, or, or not changes, perhaps, during the the communist rule. Um, so your last chapter looks at the first decade and a half of communist rule and uh, how it deals with smuggling. And also your conclusion briefly touches upon uh, some post-1978 era uh, economic reform developments. So I'm wondering if you can briefly tell us about um, your main findings from those.
0: Sure. Um, one of the 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 chapters that i enjoyed writing the most was this uh the the final chapter on smuggling during the first the early years of the people's republic of china the first the first decade and a half of communist rule when i began this um project i thought that this chapter would sort of mark the end of this sort of chaotic um, um you know this smuggling um until you know, the, the reform period in, after 1978, um, I remember, um, talking to scholars both in China and in, um, el- and elsewhere about how I wanted to, to, to research smuggling. And they basically almost uniformly said, oh yeah, there's a lot of smuggling in China before 1948 and after 1978. Um, but you know, uh, smuggling in China when Mao was alive, no way didn't exist. Um, and I essentially, uh, uh, uh Share that assumption until i actually looked at the materials and looked at the sources and i discovered that my oh my there was actually a lot of smuggling going on during this um this period and the main point that i make is that there is an, uh, an expansive underground economy that sort of opened up even during this period of um of centralization as the chinese economy was moving from um you know uh, moving towards a command economy there were a lot of opportunities um, to engage in traffic to engage in smuggling um so the point that i, I make is that there's a lot of um, continuities um, the communist government essentially inherited uh, many of the policies of the nationalist government their predecessor and expanded upon it they retained a lot of these uh tariffs on foreign goods they retained a lot of these institutions or and even though they, they they may have changed the names of the institution they changed some of the people running these institutions um, they they nonetheless utilize them and they also uh, maintained these um, policies of trying to um, assert state control over the economy so these um, all these uh, continuities um, led to um, smuggling being uh, you know being a problem throughout the 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 Maoist period and after nineteen seventy eight as well so I wanted to basically um, look at um, how things have changed but how many things have actually remained the same and I thought smuggling was a really great vehicle to do that
1: uh, well Philip uh, we've taken up a lot of your time you've been very generous uh, about sharing your research with us uh, so I'd like to Wrap things up by asking you um, a standard question that we ask on this podcast, which is, uh, what are you working on now?
0: Um i am one. oh i'm working on several projects um one project is um looking at uh insurance and uh finance and risk in modern china this project might get me closer to my interests in economy and and, in finance um and so forth um but another project that i'm thinking about is um this project um that will continue the story of um not not so much smuggling but um commercial connections or connections um, between communist China and the rest of what I call greater China um, communist China nationalist Taiwan British Hong Kong Portuguese Macau um, and The next project I have um, in mind is to write an economic history of Greater China during the Cold War from 1949 to 1989 um, during my research for this uh, book I amassed a lot of materials on um, on commercial relations um, or just connections um, between China and elsewhere that I never really used um, and and that never really fit within the book itself. But I like to actually continue that um, because there, there are some of these really interesting um, stories that I think uh, are worth highlighting and worth uh, pointing out that um, you know these these connections between um, different um, parts of Greater China, these economies that were separated by political barriers were actually uh, much more intimately tied and connected than we thought. So that is the, uh, the other project that I'm looking into.
1: And Philip, that sounds like a really fascinating project. So um, I'll keep my eyes open for that one. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and I hope you did too. All right. Bye-bye.
0: All right. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies, part of the new books network, I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. Thank you for listening.